And we're starting a new sermon series uh, called Grace in Unexpected Places. And one of the things that um, I, am, I am compelled by as I deal with people, not just church people, but certainly people outside the church, is that so often there's this false dichotomy. In our, and sometimes it plays out in our own minds because we don't really think about it. But there's such a thing as an Old Testament God and a New Testament God, as if somehow God were divided. No, he is not. In fact, Scripture makes it very clear that God is unchanging. Now, you may say, I find that troubling based on some of the things I read about God in the Old Testament. That is a true statement. And there are times where we've got to kind of hash through some things to understand really who God is and and what it was that he was doing to try to protect his people. And some of that will will be um, introduced to us in Genesis chapter 3 as we see that there is an enmity that is set up from the very beginning between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Those are not just lineage issues. Those are spiritual issues. And so there are principalities and powers and darknesses that make it very difficult for us to live in a fallen world. And so what we're going to do is look at passages from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy over the next five weeks that, that display God's unchanging grace from the very beginning. All of them will be stories that you overall should probably be familiar with. And so I want to warn you straight away that sometimes familiarity can breed contempt or can breed arrogance from the standpoint of, oh, yeah, yeah, I I understand the fall. I I understand Genesis 3. I've heard it a thousand times. Um, There are some things in there that I think we really need to dig down into and that I often hear us misquote, which, as we're going to see, was Eve's problem. Actually, the first person to twist Scripture is not Satan. It's Eve. And so it's important that we uh, seek to kind of step back from how familiar we are with some of these stories and dig down deep so that we can see for ourselves really who God is and how much he has loved us from the very beginning. And so our hope that when we're done with this series, we'll have a deeper appreciation of the God who is revealed in the Old and the New Testament, uh, not only in his word, but in Christ himself. All right. Having said that, we need to define some of our terms. So, how would you define the word grace? So, this is where I think we get off, actually, and, and sometimes we don't actually give verbiage to it. It's just what we kind of expect or how we live our lives, right? It's one thing to say this is the definition of grace, but it's a whole nother to live in a way that says it means something else. For instance, a lot of times I think we approach grace as the get-out-of-jail-free card as the thing that allows us to kind of do what we want to do to call evil good and good evil and be exonerated for that. Uh, There's some people who kind of think, yes, and and people have even stated this, I'll worry about conversion on my deathbed as if they had the opportunity to decide that when death will come. And so often I think how we live actually diminishes what grace really is. It is not a get-out-of-jail-free card at all. In fact, it's you receiving the blessing that you do not deserve under any circumstance. So grace is God granting to you blessing from the heavenly storehouses when you don't deserve one ounce of it, and yet he gives you this abundance of it. Mercy, on the other hand... And mercy and grace are tied close together, and there's times I think we conflate the two. But mercy is you not getting what you deserve based on your sin. It is you not receiving the full stroke of God's judgment or chastisement, and instead that stroke falls upon Christ. And so as we step into this series, it's important for us to remember what the biblical definition of grace is. And also the biblical definition of mercy, because we're going to see both in abundant supply throughout this text, which is about the fall. So as we step into this, um, remember that Adam and Eve, when they were created, basically were told not what they couldn't do, right? But we always jump to that just like Satan did. We always jump to that just like Eve did. We always jump to the prohibition first instead of recognizing that God said, there is all of this biodiversity for you to enjoy and examine not to mention each other, that you get to enjoy and examine and and learn without shame and without guilt. That's what he gave to them first. And he said, and oh, by the way, there is one tree that is not good for you right now. It's not good that you yet eat of the garden uh, of the tree that teaches you of good and evil. You're not ready for it. 
You're not ready to see what it is going to show you. And so he says, this is not good for you to eat. But you have all of this other abundance. See, I, and we do the same thing. I think we always, always key in on what God said we couldn't do instead of actually exalting in and taking great joy in all that he said that we could do. And that's what we're going to see straight away as the serpent comes in. So if you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, we'll read verses 1 through 7 from Genesis chapter 3 and we'll make comments along the way. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, for those of you who are um, kind of wicked in thought like me, you go, what a ridiculous story. This just reeks of mythos and untruth. And you may say, wait a minute, you're the pastor, you can't say that. I said, in my wickedness, not in my saveness. And you may say, a talking snake. How ridiculous is a talking snake? Actually, God wants you to say that. God wants you to realize just how ridiculous sin truly is. For all that we know about crack addiction and heroin addiction, can someone tell me why the numbers continue to rise? Isn't that ridiculous? For all that we know that that a single-parent home will do to those children, can you tell me why divorce in the church is very similar to that in the world, if not higher? Isn't it ridiculous? For all that we know that will happen to us when we take and we use our bodies like we do. We know that sexuality, misused, this is science by the way, rewires our brain. For those who look at porn, it's going to wire your brain one way. For those who engage in sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage, it's going to wire your brain the other way. Either way, you are rewired and you lose. We know this. And yet, how ridiculous is it that we continue to go back again and again and again to the same putrid wells seeking life in waters that can only destroy? See, it's all ridiculous if we were honest about it and we're willing to actually see it for what it is. And so God wants us to go, how in the world can Eve and Adam listen to a talking snake? Great question. And the same is posed to you in your sin. And so as the story goes on, you may say, it's also ridiculous that there's a tree, that there's plant life that could do us harm, right? Hmm, that's an interesting statement. Let me ask you, what's the war in Afghanistan really about if it's not about agriculture? Many understand that the war in Vietnam was over a little plant called the rubber plant because of the auto industry, because the French wanted tires made. You see... We've been doing this for a long, long time over agriculture. What's been the collapse of America in the 1950s if it wasn't agriculture? What is most of the substances that destroy us made of? Quite natural products. I'm saying it's, all I'm saying to you is this, it's just not that far beyond reason. God's not making up something that's totally ridiculous. In fact, he's showing you who you are, really. So notice what Satan does is he comes in and he says... And it's a hyperbolic question. It's actually brilliant. It's a brilliant place to begin. Because what he does is he pushes Eve toward God being this curmudgeon who doesn't let us do anything. Which, by the way, many of you treat God as if that is what he is. And he says, did God really say that you can't eat of any of the trees in the garden? 
So already he's got Eve backpedaling into her interpretation of what it is that God in fact did say. And he's got her backpedaling into what the negative. See what he did? He gets her to focus on the negative aspect of all that God said. And how many times is that what Satan is doing to you? Did God really say you can't ever have sex? Did God really say you can't ever make money? Did God really say you can't ever do this or that? How many of our children in here would confess to saying to your parents, you never let me do anything, which by the way is just not true. It's just not true, right? And then we translate that to God. We're always saying to God, you never give me an opportunity to do anything. As if there's not this great big old world in which God has said, there is much that is good. There is much for you to do. There is much that you can engage in that is wonderful and good. And you can change things. And you can give people glimpses of what's coming. And yet how often do we sit around and say, God, you don't give me anything. You give me no opportunities. You give me no chances. You give me no place to use my gifts. And yet there's this great big old world. And so Satan masterfully gets Eve to backpedal. So Eve, in trying to understand what Satan in fact is saying, answers his question, but she twists God's word. Notice how she makes the prohibition larger than it is. Did God say that if you touch the fruit, you will die? He didn't. So she misunderstood even the prohibition. She is the first Pharisee. Remember, the Pharisees would create walls, uh, extra rules, so you couldn't even get close to it. So she makes a Pharisaical move and saying, not only can you not eat of it, but you can't even touch it. And what happens when we actually make something even more uh, distant from us? Does it not create a greater desire within us, right? The more rules we create, the more we're like, oh, I, gotta touch it. I just need to touch it. And notice what she says. She actually minimizes the risk. She says, lest we die. And you may say, well, that's, that's minimal. No, actually, it's pretty important. Words do matter. This isn't just semantics. No, God said, surely you will die. She left it up to, for grabs. Like, maybe. You, you could touch it or you could eat it. It might kill you. I don't know. And so now she's already twisted things enough for Satan to then make the fatal final stroke. He says, not, surely you will die, is the way the Hebrew reads. Not. Surely you will die. Why would he do that? Because it sounds a lot like what God said, just with the negative on the front end, which is actually out of order for normally how a Hebrew sentence would be constructed. He knew what he was doing. If you know anything about Hitler's campaign in the Third Reich, one of the masterful strokes of Hitler was to take the language of the German church and incorporate it into the Third Reich. So where they would say, one, uh, one God, one church, one savior... I can't do it in German, and I'm not going to butcher it. He took all those same cadences and made sure the syllables were exactly the same and made it one fatherland, one Fuhrer, one Reich. So they were already used to kind of the cadence of it. It was a brilliant stroke on his part because most people don't think about what they say. And they really don't think about what they really believe, which is why we are constantly here pushing you to think which I know is hard. Most of you are like, I just want to come in and be encouraged. I like that Christmas sermon. Man, you were all up in our grill. Why couldn't you even be nice on Christmas? I get it. Because Christmas is when you expected me to be nice. And so, so it's important. It's important that we think through these things, right? This is why the Bereans and Acts are lauded for taking what the disciples said and going and checking it against it. It is very, very difficult to lead Bereans astray, which is why you ought to be Bereans. So that not just me, but the other books that you read, the blogs that you check in on, the songs that you listen to, you are careful about what you're letting in. Because we are so quick to call that which God has declared not good, good or good enough we're so quick to say that what God intended as good isn't really good for us anymore i.e. how we treat the Lord's Day Sabbath and so it's important that we all be Bereans and we will push you in that regard 
Um, we will not let up on that because it's not good for you for us to let up on that. And so it is important that if you hear something, if something is off, you've got to come say something. You, you, you've got to use the, the means that are at, at your disposal to say something is wrong. Be good Bereans. It makes me a better pastor for you to be a good Berean. Makes us a better session. Makes this church stronger for us to be good Bereans. So Eve misinterprets God's word and that allows Satan to come back and say, no, 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 that's not what's going to happen at all. In fact, here's a shortcut. I know God said you were created in the image and I know that he gave you this stuff to do that's going to help you grow more and more and more like him. But that's going to be tough. That's going to be hard. Really, all you got to do is eat this fruit and you instantaneously become. Now, where do we see Satan try the same stroke in a place in the New Testament. When Jesus is in the wilderness, remember what he said. He said, I've got a crown for you for which there is no cross. You can become, right now, Lord of all of this, all these kingdoms. And all you got to do is pledge allegiance to me. See, that ain't so bad. God's got you getting killed. And yet you can be a king without a cross. And what does Jesus do? If you remember, he quotes Scripture back to Satan and pushes him away and does not receive the crown that is without the cross. You see, we, we are always taking shortcuts. This is just us, right? We don't, want, we don't like sanctification. We don't, we don't want to, uh, in any way, shape, or form, actually hurt to grow. But you have to. It's just part of who we are. It requires some measure of stretching and sometimes pain and sometimes suffering to become what it is that God has intended for us. That's why I say to you all the time, you are horrible, me included. We all are horrible arbiters of our own sanctification. We will never put ourselves through what is necessary in order to grow. We also would run the risk of being sadomasochists on the other side if we're not careful, saying that it it really is within our control. It's not. This is why we need each other. This is why iron must sharpen iron. This is why we must do discipleship, why we must grow to try to become Bereans, to understand God's word so that we cannot be led astray from both without and even more importantly and more dangerously from within. So Eve takes what Satan says and notice what it says in the text. It says that she first looks at it and, and sees that it is a delight to the eyes and that it, the tree is to be desired to make one wise. And so she actually does, um, if you all received the letter this week uh, for communion, First John 2, I think it's 14 and 15, John talks about the ways of the world and that if you love the world, if, you, if it's the desire of the eyes and the desires of the flesh and the pride of material gain or the pride of becoming godlike, that is destructive. Eve falls immediately into that trap. So God has said, this isn't good. So she looks at it. And she says, no, no, I, as I'm looking at it, it's the eye test, right? As if the eye test tells you whether or not something is poisonous or good for you, right? How dangerous is this in the wild? For those of you who are survivalists, Jack Lane, where are you? How dangerous is it to, to actually like go, oh, this looks good to eat, and, and you die um, because it's like a poisonous berry or mushroom, right? And so she just does the eye test. Well, it looks good. And then even more than that, beyond the senses, it's now the heart comes open, and it says that she desired the wisdom. She began to desire that God-likeness, and so her flesh begins to get involved, and then the pride that comes from, I'm going to take this shortcut because I don't need what God has set up for me. I don't need the, the way that God has said we will grow, the best way for us to grow. I don't need that. I'm going to take and eat. Now, lest we be too hard on Eve, where's Adam? Well, the text indicates where he is. So what you don't know is in, in Satan's address, everything is plural. He's saying you all because he's from the south, I guess. Y'all. Uh, he's, saying, he's saying we, you all, all of you. He's, he's speaking. So it seems that Adam is present based on just the, 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 the uh, syntax alone. And Adam is silent. 
And notice as soon as she does take, she eats and turns and gives it directly to him. So he had to have been there at some point. And Adam fails to protect his wife from a talking snake. And again, you're saying, this is so, such a ridiculous thing. How many of you as husbands are not doing Ephesians 5 and you're leaving your wife open to various things and you have no earthly idea how she's doing spiritually because you never ask and you never pray with her? How ridiculous, right? So Adam is silent and he is complicit and we will notice that God will come to him first. But notice what happens when they eat. It, It does exactly what Satan said it would do in one sense. Their eyes are in fact open. But what are their eyes open to? Not their God-likeness, but how really unlike God they have become. So now they're ashamed of their own person. They are ashamed of their nakedness and their exposedness. So instead of becoming more like God, who is unashamed, They become less and less and less like him. They're actually driven away from him. And so they try to fashion these little fig leaf outfits to cover up what really cannot be covered up by material things or by the hand of man. And so now that which was one time a joy to them has now become an abject terror. We'll see in just a moment that the presence of God no longer draws them out Instead, it casts them away. That is devastating to us all. And what I want you to notice is that the fall was not just one event. It wasn't just one thing that happened. It was a series of things that happened. Adam's silence, Eve's twisting of the word, them letting their eyes and their senses dictate what was good. And the reason that it uses the language that it uses is its creation language. They're usurping God. If God said it wasn't good, for them to declare it is good is to declare themselves God. And you are the same. How many of us have said, I mean, I understand, I get it. God said, don't do this before marriage, right? But but does God really understand? (laughs) Does God really know us? Yes, he does. He knows how it's going to rewire you and haunt you for all of your days. Not because he is hunting you down, but because you have destroyed that which was intended only for one other in the context of commitment. Covenant commitment, something deep and true. Did God really mean that that we aren't supposed to do this or that? I mean, it looks good to me. I love to look at it. It, it, Yeah, the eye test works. Looks good. How many times have we done that? What's beautiful about this text is how well it knows us. And how much it calls us to the fore. How many times have we said in our flesh? How many times have you guys said, listen, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but it just feels so right. I know this isn't good for me, but it just feels like the right thing to do. Would that we would actually understand scripture well enough to know that when we start thinking that way, we should be cautioned all over the place. Red flags should be going off everywhere for us. And yet, no, not us. We call what God has deemed not good as good for us. And how, how much has modern man continued to do this? I find it utterly fascinating um, for the, the, the recent uh, women's march um, that was uh, with Trump's inauguration, they lopped off an entire group of women because those women, they say, can't be feminists if they actually value life in the womb. I, I, I want to have conversations with folks. And be like, wait a second, how in the world can you say, do you understand how ridiculous it is that we have created semantics about whether or not a child in the womb is alive? When science has declared hands down that it is, in fact, alive. So we've gotten into the philosophical and said, well, it's a fetus and not a being. It doesn't have autonomy. Have we not hit the height of lunacy on this issue? And yet, you cannot be a feminist. You cannot care about women's rights at all if you, in your ignorance, would declare that something in your womb was alive and worthy of personhood. My God, my God. I don't know why he tarries. 
Listen to what Bruce Waltke says about this passage. It says, Satan smoothly maneuvers Eve into what may appear as a sincere theological discussion. How many times have y'all done this? Right? You, you know what you want to get away with, but you start on some sort of sincere theological level. Like you act like, yeah, let's, Cameron, let's talk about whether or not the Bible actually says X or Y. When I, when I, usually I'll push past that and go, what do you really, what's your real objective here? Let's skip all the philosophical dancing. Let's talk about what you really want. Well, Satan maneuvers her into the sincere theological discussion, but he subverts obedience and distorts perspective by emphasizing God's prohibition, not his provision, reducing God's command to a question, doubting his sincerity, defaming his motives, and denying the truthfulness of his threats. I want to pause for a second. Let me tell you how the church sometimes does Satan's work for him. How many of you have been part of churches that emphasize all the prohibitions and never the freedom and never the good side or the cultivation side? They just said, look, don't touch, don't smell, don't play, don't say, and you'll be fine. Well, Colossians 2 actually pushes against that. It says, no, that's not what makes you a Christian at all. And yet, we the church sometimes have failed to actually display God's goodness, instead trying to create a group of people who just are well-behaved, at least on the outside. Let us be careful, and that is charged at me. The serpent's subtle changes to God's words entirely distort the truth. He wants God's word to appear harsh and restrictive. Is this sounding familiar to anybody? Isn't, the world, isn't that what the world's trying to do is to make God's words sound harsh and restrictive and unfortunately we've given them enough fodder that it's really shooting fish in a barrel at this point. It goes on. Eve gradually yields to the serpent's denials and half-truths by disparaging her privileges, adding to the prohibition and minimizing the threat. Good is no longer rooted in what God says enhances life, but in what people think is desirable to elevate life. They distort what is good into what is evil. Now, here's the question for you to consider. And I would encourage you to think this through on this Lord's Day. This is a tough question, by the way. But it is in line with the Psalms that basically say, Lord, show me my darkness, show me my anxieties. So what are some of the things that you have deemed good for you that God has not deemed good or is deemed evil by his word? Now this is talking about you. We're not talking about uh, some church you didn't like or some church leader you didn't like or something somebody else has gotten wrong. I'm talking about you. You need to examine you because we've all done it. And do you know God's word well enough to know the difference even? So often this is where we falter. Again, Bereans are very difficult to lead astray. Would that we would all, every single one of you, be Bereans. Now you may say, does that mean I've got to quote Obadiah chapter and verse? No. But it's good for you to know what Obadiah is about. It's good for you to know this in the Bible. Such that if I did quote, like, like if, I gave, if I said, this is in Ephesiastes 5.11, that someone in here would say, I, I don't think that's in the Bible. Right? So, or even more important, that we would, how often do we twist God's grace one way or the other? Do we twist God's mercy one way or the other? Or do we twist his judgment one way or the other instead of having the full picture? Because we know God's word and we know not what Brian Chappell thinks about God's Word, and not what Bruce Waltke thinks about God's Word, and not what Tim Keller thinks about God's Word, not what John Piper thinks about God's Word, or what Vodi Bauckham thinks about God's Word, but instead to know, in fact, what God's Word actually says. Now, you may say, that's going to take a while. Yeah, it does. And you better start now. Because again, I'll say it again, I've said it before, you have no idea how you're setting yourself up for failure, based on your lack of study and your lack of prayer over the last few months. You don't know what's coming six months down the road. You don't know what's coming three months down the road. You don't know what's coming a year from now that you will have needed 
what it was you should have been studying or you should have been submitting yourselves to. If you would turn back to the text and let's look at the curse. We're not going to go through every ounce of this. We'll go through it fairly quickly. Um, But the main thing I want us to see is God's grace in the midst of the curse. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall, be bru- he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken." For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. All right, so notice how painful this is. God shows up to be with his people, and they run and hide. Here's what's interesting. Now, they had made fig leaves. Why does Adam still think he's naked? Because he knows that God can see through all that. He knows that what he can do is insufficient. So at least Adam is not all the way off the rail. But notice how God doesn't hunt him down. He calls him out and gives him the chance to repent. But immediately what happens? The blame game. Right? I, well, I mean, God, you gave her to me. And she was, obviously she was broke when you made her. So uh, I can't take full responsibility. You, you do understand. Right? And how often do you do that? It's not my fault. Circumstances. It's, I didn't have the right resources. God, you put me in this place. You didn't give me that job. You didn't give me that spouse. You didn't give me that house. You gave me this instead. It is you, God, who is to blame for my sin. And notice what Eve does. Eve does the other thing that we all like to do, which is to make it external to ourselves, right? Oh, that serpent that you made, by the way. Who's crafty? You, may, you must have made him crafty. I don't know. Uh, he, he, he messed all this up. I find it fascinating how we talk about sin, especially those who are addicted. I've spent a lot of time with folks who are addicted. And they always speak of it as something external to themselves. No, it is you. It is you. It is not external to you. It is not something like a demon that jumped upon you. It is something you gave into because you called evil good and good evil. You did. Now, you may say, Cameron, but isn't there a genetic link that predisposes us? Absolutely, I believe there to be. My family is horrifically addicted. Which, does it make it wise if they legalize pot for me to smoke it? Who have seen the destruction of complete towns. So you got to understand, in the inner city, pot's been legal for, I can't, for 20 years. Cops don't bust anybody for weed in the inner city anymore. And let me ask you, has the inner city improved for all that freedom? The answer is no. And that's not the only problem either. I'm not ignorant of the host of complex issues that is the inner city, but I can tell you, if the highest good is smoking weed out on the porch all day and slinging, you ain't going to do anything else. 
Is it wise for me, if addiction runs in my family, for me to partake of lots of different things? Is it wise for me to partake of alcohol in the, in the sense of what used to make me not human or less than human? It is utterly unwise. I don't care how cool it is to drink scotch and, and bourbon now. Uh, it's just not wise for me. I can't, I can't do those things. I can't call that which is evil for me, good. It doesn't make me more powerful to be unwise. And the same is true for you. I want you to recognize you play all these same blame games. Now, I also want you to notice that God doesn't question the serpent. He has no question for the serpent. It's immediate judgment. And he judges him in such a way that he says, you, that which you tried to meld together, I will keep separated so that there will always be a remnant so that my image will always be born. My glory will always be in creation. You have accomplished nothing. And in Christ, you will be overthrown. And he says, your head will be crushed someday. Also notice, which is a great grace, by the way, that they didn't receive what they deserved. In fact, he gives the promise of redemption despite their fallenness. What a great gift in the midst of the fall. He also doesn't take away from them their image bearing. They're still going to be fruitful and multiply. It's just going to hurt. Man is still going to have dominion. It's just going to hurt. But he doesn't take away from him that which makes him actually godlike. He still can cultivate and grow. It's just not going to be as easy as it could have been. And in that is grace. He's loving them by keeping the image and keeping the call upon their lives and promising them redemption. Listen to what uh, my old seminary professor John Fesco says about this. He says, Adam's rebellion, however, did not mean that God's intended goal for the creation was subverted. Now that's good news. We're not in plan B, by the way. God's sovereignty continues. What he determined from the beginning is and will come to pass. It goes on to say, on the contrary, Genesis 3.15 states that God promised to send one who would crush the head of the serpent. The work of the one to come was not merely to destroy the serpent, but as will be evident from the rest of redemptive history, to take up the abandoned work of the first Adam. That means that Jesus will fulfill in full covenant glory what Adam was intended to do. Therefore, God's plan will come to pass. That is good news to us, and that is great grace to us, that we who are fallen are still included in this through redemption in Christ. God's grace is the same as it has always been. God's plan is the same as it has always been. So let me ask you, do you regularly take responsibility for your sinful failing, or do you blame others? Or your circumstances, or do you blame God? Who do you blame first? It's just very similar to the question, when you fail, and we all do, which way do you run? If you understand the gospel, you will run to the throne of grace to receive exactly what you need in that time of trouble. If you don't understand the gospel, you will go and hide, thinking you can get away from God. Who the psalmist says is even in Sheol or the grave with us, there is nowhere we can go to escape him. And that actually is good for us. Because could we break from the grip of God, who is sovereign and is good, there is a lion waiting to destroy you. And how does redemption in Christ free you to actually take responsibility for the things that you do so that you can actually grow from them? See, it's crippling to us that we always see our sin as external. We always talk about our problem as something external to us instead of recognizing it for what it really is, which is a deep-down worship disorder. It's a heart issue. Everything comes back to a heart issue, a worship disorder. And no amount of techniques, techniques are good, counseling is good, as long as it drives us to recognize who we really are and who God really is. Anything that continues to empower us to see our problem as external to ourselves ultimately devastates us because we're not really dealing with the problem. Because, and I've said this to folks at the rescue mission, you can be sober and 
absolute jerks. And that is not the gospel. It is not the gospel for you to get better in your sin, but still be hard in heart. Which is why we don't manage sin here. Instead, we focus upon worship. We focus upon discipleship because ultimately that's what's going to change things, not sin management. So, in Christ, we can actually take responsibility for our failings. Susan, who's not in here, is okay with me telling this story, by the way. There was this moment where um, we had this, this incredible breakthrough in our marriage. <clears throat> now, my family loved to fight to the death, right? So there was no, no thing you couldn't say to try to destroy the other person. In fact, the whole goal was just make them, they can be right, but make them so hate it they don't want to be right anymore. And Susan grew up with Warden June Cleaver, for those of you who know what that means. Uh, she grew up in this, they never argued, uh, there was no bloodletting, it just, it just wasn't. So when we came together, it was a, there was a little adjustment period, because Cameron was a bloodletter, and Susan was a uh, stare at you and cry, which actually had an impact upon my heart. I couldn't, I can't, just so you know, and this, this give, gives you a free pass, if it ever looks like I'm starting to lean into her, if you start crying, I'll have to, it does something to me. I, it just, it's like kryptonite. I, I fall apart. So, so but, but Susan, uh, Susan and I were, and I don't even remember the discussion. It was something in reference to Devin, and she was standing in Devin's, we, we were in Devin's room, and I was going for the sword. And she, I remember she had her back to me. Not a li- real sword, by the way. Just, so, not a real one. So we're clear. I was going for the metaphorical sword, and uh, she turned, and she looked, and she said, you're right. I'm wrong. Now, if you don't know this about Susan, one of the great gifts that Susan has is she is stubborn as mess. And she'll do this. She'll, she'll like, you try to get her to do something, she'll go, okay. She ain't going to fight with you. She'll just say, okay, and then do whatever it is that she wanted to do, right? And she's got this very subtle way about her. <laughs> so, but she, when she turned and said, I, I'm wrong, you're right. I went, I, I don't think you know how to fight. Uh, <laughs> I think you're, something ain't right. And it caught me off guard, but it showed me Christ in my wife, who was willing to take responsibility for something. It wasn't even a major issue, but she took responsibility for something. And it also taught me how to do the same thing, that it's actually safe to say, I'm wrong, because my wife is going to still love me in Christ. Christ is still going to love us. God's still going to love us. Notice what he does for Adam and Eve, he still loves them. And we're going to see even more of his love for them, even as he kicks them out. If you would turn back to the text as we close out Genesis 3, beginning in verse 20, says, The man called his wife's name Eve, which sounds very similar in the Hebrew to a Hebrew word for life giver. Because she was the mother of all living, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, First off, we need to recognize that God, uh, Adam actually evidences that he believes Genesis 3.15 to be true. For him to name Eve the mother of all life means that he took what God said as grace and is in fact saying, I believe Genesis 3.15. And then for God to make skins to actually adequately cover them. Now there's a debate, scholarly debate, as to whether or not there's an actual sacrifice here. I don't want to get into that so much, but what we do see for sure is that God says what you made was insufficient to clothe your shame. I'm going to cover it in full. The Hebrew word here is actually speaks of a gown that flows all the way down, covers all exposed flesh. So here in God's grace, he's saying, I know you're ashamed. I know you know you're naked. I will cover your shame. And then for him to exile them east of Eden, is to keep them from being permanently destroyed in their fallenness. For them to eat of the tree of life, knowing what they know and not going through the process of sanctification unto the fullness of redemption would be devastating for them. So he's loving them by kicking them out so that they would not be sealed. Now you may say, well, wait a minute now. 
I thought he said he would surely die. He ain't even dealt with that yet. Well, he did. But see, death understood as being cut off from God, the giver of all life. He did show that he surely had died because as soon as God showed up, they all hid. They hid from the source of life, the source of provision, and they were cut off without a sacrifice. And we too are the same, are we not? That is the true death. It's not the ending of this life. It is whether or not we are, in fact, in union with Christ, connected to the Lord our God. And so God kicks them out so that they would not be sealed for an eternity in their brokenness. Listen to what Andrew Fuller says of this passage. He says, God is determined that man shall not so much as dwell in the garden where the tree of life grows, but be turned out as into the wide world. Yet even in this as in the other threatening." we may perceive a mixture of mercy. Man had rendered his days evil, and God determines that they shall be but few. It is well for us that the life of sin and sorrow is not immortal. We're not sealed in our brokenness. That is good news to us. This is why we can take responsibility because what Christ has done for us. This is why we can actually change and grow. Don't ever let me hear you say, I, cannot, I can't change. Yes, you can but you cannot in your own strength, in that you would be right. You need the means of grace. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. You need community. And so, has God ever removed you from something or somewhere as part of his discipline? He has me on a couple of occasions, actually. And how did he reveal his grace to you in the midst of the removing? There are things he's taken us out of. It was hard. It's hard on us. But yet, what I want you to know is that any time he does push us into exile, given the pattern of biblical history, it is to redeem us and draw us back to him because the most important thing is not where you work, is not where you live, is not even who you're married to, not how many kids you have, not what church you go to. The most important thing is whether or not you're in union with Christ, connected to God the Father, the giver of all life. Those things do matter, by the way. They just aren't the most important compared to that reality. And so what do we learn from this passage? One, a poor knowledge of God's word puts us at great risk for being led astray. Please hear that. Two, God's discipline of his children always contains grace in Christ. Please hear that too. Always God's discipline is for for our being restored. Three, God's mercy and grace are present even in the midst of the punishment of exile. John Walton says, in eating the fruit, Adam and Eve attempted to gain autonomy and move away from their dependence on God. In his pronouncement, God outlines the trade-offs that have been made. Both Adam and Eve will still be dependent on him to carry out their primary functions and secure the benefits of blessing. The anguish and anxiety they experience in their functions will constantly exhaust their resources and cast them on God. So even the curse was an act of mercy and grace. Because it drives us back to him again and again and again because we are constantly seeking to be autonomous, aren't we? Right? We just want to do our own thing, be left alone. We're starting to all sound like 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds. Just leave me alone. If you let me live my life, I'll be so much better. Right? Isn't that us? All the time we're saying that. We don't want people to know us. We don't want to be in community. We don't want to be discipled. We don't want to be exposed. We don't want anybody knowing our business. Because we don't believe the truth about who God is and his unchanging love and grace. And yet, he wanted to make sure that we had something that we would constantly be reminded, right? So he said, listen, I've got, I've got something I want you to do on a regular basis, I want you to do this in remembrance of me because you guys are so quick to forget. And you need something tangible because words alone just aren't going to do it sometimes. And you need to be able to see and taste and smell and feel, right? So he gave us the Lord's Supper, which we have the benefit of enjoying together this morning. Now, who should not partake of this table? Well, number one, if you're not in union with Christ... This ain't a good lunch. This ain't going to get it done for you. 
Um, and so, uh, and more importantly, I also don't want you to eat unto a curse to yourself. So if you are undecided on whether or not you're a Christian, don't take. It's not worth it. It will only confuse you and won't lead you where you really need to go. Two, if you harbor in your heart a profound unforgiveness towards someone else, meaning that you could say this, I'd just assume they burn in hell. I hope they aren't in heaven. Well, you can't say that because you have been granted so great a forgiveness for all the sins that you've committed. You are not God. You don't get to decide who's in and who's out. God does. Now, you may be wrestling with it. You may have gone through some profound suffering where you're struggling to forgive. If you're struggling to forgive and you're willing to, but you say, Lord, help my unbelief, then you can eat because you need it. You need to be nourished. The last person who shouldn't eat of this table is not anyone in here that I'm aware of, but I need to say it because there's some of y'all I don't know. If you are currently under church discipline at your local church, you should not eat of this table. If they've sanctioned you, um, you, you need to, you, we need to know about that. We need to work through that and see if you've actually worked through the process to get here. Again, I don't know of anybody in that case in here, um, but if you know of it, just let the elements pass you by. Everybody else, everybody else who knows that they need a Savior, everybody else who takes responsibility for their sin, everybody else who recognizes that their sin is not external to them, that it is them, that they have a worship disorder and they need this. You've got to take to be nourished to make it through another week in a fallen world. So the elders who are serving would come forward on the night that was the last night that Christ would spend with his disciples before he would be crucified. He took bread and he held it up and he broke it. And he said, this, this is my body given for you. We need one more elder. There you go, Bill. Look at Bill. Sprang so spry. He said, this is my body broken for you. And, and he showed them that brokenness. And, he, and he, what he was saying to them is, this, this is what it's going to take to do away with your shame, to cover your nakedness. Now know that Christ covers us. It's not that we are unclothed, as 2 Corinthians 5 says. It says, no, we are further clothed. Death is swallowed, and I love this image. Death is swallowed in life. Would that we as Christians would be accused as being people who are so filled with life that it just seems to swallow up the darkness all around us. Would that we would be accused of just being folks who come up with creative ways in which the darkness is pushed back instead of joining the shrill voices that don't seem to be offering anything new east of Eden. Would that we remember we still are called to cultivate and we've been given gifts and that we would use them. So as you take and eat, would you hold the bread until we can all take together as family and just meditate on how good God is, how his grace has, un, has been unchanging, and how what you hold in your hand was promised to you in the midst of the curse. In Genesis 3.15, that what you hold in your hand is in essence a symbol of the crushing of the head of the serpent. And he could not claim you as his own. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the broken bread so that we would not be broken broken by being separated from you. Thank you that the broken bread actually joins us. So as we take and eat of this, would your Holy Spirit bring to our mind a remembrance of how good you have been to us, that you have not left us in our sin, that you have not left us in our shame, that you have not left us naked and afraid. God, thank you that you swallow death up in life. May we be people who represent that well in this world to your glory. In Christ's name. Amen.
take and eat together as family. On that same night, on that same meal, he took the cup and he lifted it up and he said, this, this is my blood poured out for you for the new covenant. And what he meant was that it's not just that you have been rendered not naked, it's that you've been made new again. Is that that which you were cut off from, now you have been restored to, and so that you may walk in newness of life to do all the beautiful and the creative things that God has foreordained for you, the good works that have been prepared for you beforehand, Ephesians 2, you now can do in Christ. So as you receive the cup, if you would hold it um, until, so we can all take together and we'll stand. We have one last song to sing and then the benediction. Um, meditate on what it is that God is calling you to do that, that, that is actually a reflection of your, your particular sin. Your brokenness does not have the final say in your life. That it is a display of God's grace and mercy in and through you despite all of the brokenness that is in this world. And so as we take together, let us drink to that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the new covenant. Thank you that you cover us in the blood of Christ. Thank you that we are able to do that which we in and of ourselves could never do, which is actually glorify you in a broken world. May we be very creative people. May we be a people who long for learning about who we are and how we are gifted and to long to be disciples who make disciples who display your glory in this world, both in word and in deed, that we would recognize the image that is born in all human beings and that we would seek to push back the darkness wherever it resides and wherever the devil claims territory is his. May we have the courage to go in and the power of the Holy Spirit to use our gifts and to see things change for your glory and for the good of your people. We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen.
you would stand. Let's take and drink together to the new covenant together as family.
Just a reminder, if you are a member to grab one of those deacon cards, make sure to put your name on it. You can put nominations. There should be a silver bucket in which you can drop those or you can hand them to any one of the leaders. Uh, so make sure you do uh, vote if you feel so led uh, for deacons. We could use a couple of more. Be praying for that process. Um, also, to be praying for the DeMars. Uh, Katie DeMar is uh, very nigh unto birth. And I, I was just trying to help out by going along. I thought maybe we could spark something here, but it didn't work. Uh, so, uh, if you would be praying for their family, because the time draws nigh. All right, um, receive this benediction from Genesis chapter 12, and receive it for the true blessing that it is, thinking about all that we've talked about this morning. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all, the families of the earth shall all be blessed. You are blessed because God is faithful to ensure that it is true. Go in blessings and in peace in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost.